Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Where you've got you know, a nucleus, we've got the, the neutrons and protons. I was really nervous about the title of your talk yesterday, <laughs> where protons exist. You have your nucleus, and then you have this kind of electron cloud, um, which we sort of draw as sort of a fuzzy cloud that we have some 95% confidence that your electrons are within the circle that you draw. So you have all this electron density around the nucleus, and so there's a lot of ways to figure out chemical structure, but one of the easiest um, and most used when you can, you can persuade your compound to be a crystalline solid. You can use something called X-ray diffraction. And a crystal, if you remember, has evenly spaced atoms or molecules within a geometric shape. Okay, it could be a rectangular prism or you know a little wobble one way or the other. But it's a regular array of your atoms or molecules. And what you can do is take X-rays and shine them towards your crystal, which you have epoxy, using epoxy that you get from Lowe's, um, onto a little glass fiber um, that you put on a, on a thing that can move around, and you, you shoot x-rays at it. And what happens is the x-rays will diffract off of your electron cloud, right? Uh, and they'll hit a detector, it used to be photographic film, now it's, it's fancier, uh, and it'll make a spot, right? And so when your x-rays come and diffract, that's your signal that there's actually something there, right? There's some electron density that your x-rays are diffracting off of. And it turns out that the intensity of that diffraction tells you something about how much electron density is there, so it can tell you what atom you have, okay? So you can figure out atom and position by your electron density. So you have these diffraction patterns that look like these spots, and you do math upon the spots, um, and you get an electron density map, which is sort of a, a contour map of where electron density is. You put in your guess as to where your atoms and bonds are. You fit the expected, the calculated electron density from that model to what you observe. If the fit is good enough, you get your ice cream. Uh, if it's not good enough, you try again until the, the fit is good enough um, that the science, the, the scientifically accepted uh, the values are, uh, have told you that you've, you've gotten the structure of your molecule and you, you have the structure of your molecule, okay? So they started doing X-ray diffraction um, on, on, on crystals in early 1900s. By 1930s or so, a lot of salts and sort of uh, uh, geological mineral samples were being done. By the 40s and 50s, we start getting uh, organic molecules and biomolecules. Uh, here's one of the, the, the leaders in the field, Dorothy Hodgkins, who won a Nobel Prize in the early 60s, who did crystal structures of biological molecules. Okay, so this is vitamin B12, important um, in, in biology, and it's got a copper in the middle and a lot of um, atoms around, and she figured out uh, the crystal structure of this. And this, this, this was not an easy thing um, at the time, right? Because you didn't have computers to do math up on the spots, right? So you had to, you had to do it all your own um, and, and do, uh, do the fitting your, yourself. But you get, you get the, the structure 
And notice that you see balls here and you see sticks. Um, this is a physical model of it. Uh, here's a, a picture um, more recently drawn. I'm going to come back to those, those little sticks in a moment uh, in this talk. Um, but we can, we can be pretty certain of the structure. And she's got a great quote. A great advantage of x-ray analysis as a method of chemical structure analysis is the power to show some totally unexpected and surprising structure with complete certainty. Okay. Now, complete certainty here, not, not in, I think, uh, our, our philosophical sense because I already told you that we're fitting experimentally observed data to our guess as to where the atoms are. There is movement of the atoms because we are not doing these at absolute zero, right? Not all crystals, or actually no crystal is perfect, right? You don't have a perfect array of your molecules. There's always some errors of various kinds. Um, but nonetheless, um, it's, it's pretty good. We're pretty confident in, in chemical structure. The last thing I would say that we're, we're pretty confident about in chemistry, somewhere between confident and uh, a victim of hubris, I don't know, somewhere, somewhere in there, um, is that if a molecule exists, we can make it, okay? And that's kind of, uh, that's the story we, we tell our undergraduate students, um, especially in organic chemistry, we like to, we like to say that. Um, and so here's an example of the, the total synthesis of vitamin B12 which was one of the first examples of sort of natural product synthesis. So biology is really great at making really complicated things, right? Um, and chemistry, historically, was a pretty practical science, right? We're doing mineralogy, we're doing mining, we're making inks, we're making paints and coatings and ceramics. Um, but it took a long time for us to, to get enough synthetic tools to uh, approach something that biology did. But so here's vitamin B12. You, you just saw the structure that, that Dorothy Hodgkins figured out. So here's the synthesis of it. Finished it in 1972. Took 12 years. Took over 90 reactions. Took 103 chemists, right? And these are our, our postdoc and, and PI level chemists and probably a fleet of graduate students uh, and undergraduates representing 19 countries, okay? Most of this was done at Harvard and ETH in, in Switzerland. Um, Big project, lots of money, big project, three Nobel Prizes in chemistry, one in medicine, but we made vitamin B12, okay? So we, we can make it, we're pretty confident if, 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 if it exists, we can, we can make it. Okay, so what are we confident that we're uncertain about, okay? What are we, what are we certain that we're uncertain about? Well, the first of these is measurement, and you heard about some of that yesterday, so I'm not gonna talk much about that. But I mention it here because for most students, chemistry, high school chemistry, is the first time they hear about uncertainty in, in, in science, right? You have significant figures. Most of you, maybe, hopefully, most of you took high school <laughs> chemistry. Um, and you, you, you saw the ruler piece, and you, you learned that beakers weren't as good as burettes, right? And you learned that, you know, our, our observing of something is also uncertain, right? Because what I think the volume is and what you think the volume is, maybe not the same. Maybe if we're both well-trained, it, it's consistent, but maybe not exactly the same. So students are really comfortable with this. They don't like it, but they're very comfortable with it. They're so comfortable, they want to use it as the answer for everything, okay? So why did you only get five grams of your product instead of 20? Well, the balance, the balance 
The balance can't tell us anything, right? <laughs> so chemists are quite confident about uncertainty in uh, measurement. But the other place that we encounter uh, conversations about uncertainty really quickly um, as an undergraduate is in chemical mechanisms. Okay, So chemical mechanism is a story we're going to tell ourselves about how we're going to get from reactants to products. Okay. Um, and remember I said, you know, our chemistry is a study of matter, so what stuff we have, and the changes it undergoes, okay? So we're, chemists are all about making new things, and so how are we going to get there? So in every book, every organic textbook, a lot of gen chem textbooks, every textbook, you get something that looks like this here. How can we determine reaction mechanism? The strict answer to this question is we cannot. Although we cannot strictly prove a mechanism, we can certainly rule out many or even all reasonable alternatives. Okay, so we're going to, to think about our mechanism in disproving alternatives because we can't actually see what's going on um, in, the, in, in the reaction mechanism itself, okay? So the type of uncertainty that this is, is like if I ask you to tell me how did I get from Richmond, Indiana, right on the border, of Indiana and Ohio, to Washington, D.C., okay? So you knew I was there, right, because I have a house, I have a cat named Proton, um, <laughs> in Richmond, Indiana, and you tell me. Yeah, and you know that I'm here, hopefully, we kind of know that we exist right here, but you don't know how I got from one to the other, right? So I could have driven to the airport in Dayton and flown over, takes about an hour and a half flight. I could have driven, it's about nine hours. I could have biked, okay, it's 55 hours. Um, are these all the ways I could have gotten here? Well, no, right, I could have walked, could have gone west on the Oregon Trail, bad things happen, get on a boat, fly, uh, you know, sail around the world, you know, row my way to Washington, D.C. Maybe all my, my atoms and, and electrons could quantum tunnel from you know, Richmond, Indiana to Washington, D.C. So I don't necessarily know that these are the only three ways that can, can happen. And I can't actually know which, you, you can't know which of these I did, right? But you can have some evidence. If I had a, a parking stub for the airport in Dayton, right, and a metro ticket from D.C., and I told you that, it took me less than four hours to get from my house to, to here, you would pretty, you would, you would guess it's, it's the airplane, right? But that's just one trip. If I did this many times, maybe sometimes I would drive, maybe sometimes I would bike, not really. Um, but I, I could go many different pathways, right? So this is what we think of molecules doing in our, um, our reactions. And so we have pictures, right, of these things. Chemists are very, very pictorial. And we draw these little pictures of you, you having uh, an incoming species and their little electrons, which we represent by dots. I'll come back to that in a minute, too. Um, and they're going to go somewhere and something else is going to happen. We also look at it um, in terms of energy, right? So we're going from reactants to products. Usually the products are, are stable often more stable than your reactants because they're, they're wanting to go that, that direction. And so in order to get there, you're having to kind of go over a hill. So this is just like hiking over a hill. And the higher the hill, 
the slower the reaction is, and there are ways sometimes you can lower that hill, catalysis enzymes, you can have multiple hills to get over, right? If a reaction occurs all at once, you just get one hill. If you have more than one step, you get more than one hill. At the top of the hill and along the way, you can't actually isolate the compound, okay? Because it doesn't exist as a stable structure, um, you, you, can't, you can't isolate it. So a lot of our tools that, that we use to tell you what, what, the, what the structure is, we, we can't use. If you have more than one hill and you have a little valley, even if it's kind of a high valley, you're gonna stay there for a while and you can sometimes get some information about what we call the intermediate state um, state there. So here's kind of the two-dimensional representation. Here's a, a kind of neater picture of a, a three-dimensional representation. You can think of it as a um, kind of a mountain range, right? Um, and you're trying to get from one valley to another valley along some pathway, okay? So chemistry member know that we can't precisely know the mechanism, right? And this is actually a philosophical uh, claim, um, similar to the, our, our second talk we had uh, on Wednesday. So we know this, and yet, we're pretty confident about a good number of mechanisms, okay? And so sometimes this is because we've seen that intermediate in some way. Um, sometimes it's because uh, we've, we've done some calculations or there are some kind of secondary effects that we see that, that make us think it is going one direction or another. And sometimes it's just reasoning about what the molecule wants to do, which is dangerous because it doesn't really have desires. Doesn't want to do much of anything, right? So here's an, a, a classic example. This is also in every organic chemistry textbook. So this is nucleophilic uh, addition, nucleophilic aromatic addition. Okay, it's in every textbook. It's on every MCAT exam, every GRE, and it's exactly this way in, in every textbook. So um, chemists are pretty confident. Were for a long time since the 60s that this went in two steps. Right, so one mountain, another mountain. You had something come in to attack a carbon on an aromatic ring, that's what the, the hexagon there is. Um, it, it formed something that was stable for a very brief amount of time. I actually saw some of these in some, some particular uh, kinds of reactions. Um, and then uh, the electrons uh, kind of went back into the ring, kicked off a chloride, and you had your product. So this has been there, every textbook. That's very certain, but remember, we know we're not certain. So computational chemists have been telling, telling us for a good 20 years that this isn't how it, how it really is, okay? So they've done calculations. First calculations they did on organic reaction mechanisms because this is in every textbook. But chemists aren't really good at just believing computations, and that's a fair, a fair point because the computational chemistry is approximating some quantum uh, chemistry, which is approximating um, some things, and you can get different answers to your, your computational chemistry question, depending on what, uh, what methods you use to, to simulate it. And so chemists have this kind of suspicion that like, well, you know, really what's happening is they're just messing with some variables until they get the answer that they, they want. They're not, right, it's more complicated than that. But that's the, that's the, the suspicion of especially synthetic chemists. 
um, toward for chemical computation. So even though there's some mounting computational evidence that this didn't happen, or it didn't happen always this way, we're not gonna do this. So about five years ago, uh, we get the big headline, right? Textbook aromatic substitution mechanism overthrown. Um, and so it, it was a, a nature paper. And so uh, what they were looking at um, is, is this exact same type of reaction. Um, and they, they were looking at several um, kind of edge cases, places where that intermediate would be highly stabilized, places where that intermediate would not be stabilized, and, and somewhere in between. And they did calculations, very good calculations on it. But then they did something very clever. They used something called the kinetic isotope effect and a particular use of the kinetic isotope effect in NMR spectroscopy, okay? So kinetic isotope effect basically says that, you know, every atom um, isn't necessarily exactly the same or the same element. You could have different number of neutrons, right? So you have carbon-12, you have carbon-13, you have carbon-14, that's one we use in dating. And if you look at carbon-12 and carbon-13, you can see differences in the speed at which the, the reaction goes because carbon-13 is heavier. And so the bonds take more energy to, to stretch and to, to go along. But that's hard because these reactions are really fast and carbon NMR is really bad. Um, it's really slow, it takes a long time. I hope the chemists in there were, were chuckling because you sat there overnight watching the little peak kind of grow. Um, so what they, their very, very clever thing is using fluorine as a sort of reporter atom um, next to, kind of within um, three or four bonds of the carbon that they were looking at the, the kinetic isotope effect of and using the satellites, um, the, the carbon-13, fluor uh, fluorine-19 satellites to then figure out the rate of reaction so then they could um, back up from that whether the reaction occurred in one step or two steps because you have different uh, amount of kinetic isotope effect depending on which, which of those you, you have. So they figured out that in fact most of the time, about 83% of the time of the, the ones that they've done, uh, it goes as one step, not two steps, okay? And so you guys are like, well, you know, why? Why, why do we care uh, about, <laughs> about that, right? Um, when you think about um, a story of how a reaction gets to a product, if you believe that story and you're certain it goes that way, you're not looking for other pathways, right? That might be more efficient, might be faster, might allow you to make different molecules than you could before. And remember, we can make anything, right? So we want to understand all the possible stories and we wanna know which ones are, are most probable or least probable, okay? So here, now this is gonna be the example probably for, for the next 50 years of exactly the, the statement in the book. So like, yeah, we can't know the mechanism because see, see, we were wrong. Okay, so there, there we go. Uh, oh, yeah, I this, this is just a picture of the kind of one instead of the, uh, the, the two steps. Kind of a little easier to see, um, maybe, maybe in that way. Okay. So chemists are um, pretty sure we, we know the identity of a substance. We can figure out its chemical formula. We know its chemical structure. 
with high confidence, meaning we know where the atoms are, okay? And our business is breaking and making bonds, right? To make new, new, new chemical substances. But bonds are a problem, right? So the fact that something um, needs to keep these, these atoms together, it's been known for a long time, so here's a good Isaac Newton quote. Not exactly talking about chemical bonding here, but it, it, it works. Um, so what is experimental philosophy gonna say about how, how these atoms are held together? So, if you, if you take an introduction to chemistry course, you take high school chemistry course, the story goes like this, right? You have two atoms, they have electrons, you're going to form a bond between them, they're going to, to um, have, have two electrons and one bond between two atoms, always that. Um, if you are a little, a little fancier, you get into ionic bonding and covalent bonding, right? And you remember ionic bonding was the one where uh, one atom gives away its electrons to the other one, so metals and non-metals, and covalent bonding was the one where they were very nice and they shared together. Um, and those were always two, uh, two non-metals. And if you're really good, you get into polar covalent bond, which is sort of in the middle, where they don't share equally. It's like me and my sister, right? <laughs> Perfect sharing. And if you're, if you're kind of paying attention as a student, you go, wait, well, wait a minute. You told me ionic bonds and covalent bonds, but then there's these polar covalent bonds which are in the middle. How do you know which kind of bond it is? And then, you know, this teacher kind of like, well, you understand when you're older. <laughs> because, you know, it's a continuum and uh, bonds, I don't know, are real either. And so, and so, you know, so there's, there's, there's chemical, and so students ask, well, like, well, why, right? Like, why are these atoms gonna share electrons uh, with each other? Because, you know, like, oh, electrons are like chocolate, I like my chocolate, why are we gonna do it? Um, so we, we tell a story about this uh, balance of attractive and repulsive forces, right? We tell them electrons are negative, protons are positive, we know the opposites attract. So you have some attraction electrons to protons, you have some repulsion of the electrons, and so all this balances out, and the best, the best way for them to get along is to, to bond. And we draw pictures like this, right? So on the y-axis here, we have energy. So higher energy, bad, lower energy, good, because molecules like to be lazy at low energy, right? And we tell them at very large differences, our distances, our, our energy is zero, and if you put them too close together, you get too much repulsion energy goes up, but at a, at a magic distance uh, called our bond distance, we have a dip in this, in this energy, and that's our chemical. Okay, well there's lots of problems, it turns out, with this. Uh, one of the first problems is that you actually get a picture like this even without a chemical bond, right, or without what we think of as a chemical bond. So these are two hydrogen atoms, but if you take two helium atoms and you kind of put them together, you'll also get a dip in energy, something called Van der Waals interaction. Um, but we never think of two helium atoms really bonded in those cases, right? So from the get-go, there are lots of lots of problems with this picture, but it's still still going to be a useful um, useful picture. 
So backing up just a little bit, so chemical bonds were the kind of name. Um, came around 1865, 1866, Edward Franklin, I think, uh, British, um, who kind of thought chemical bonds were maybe something like gravity, that kind of force. Um, Roselius, a little, just a few years later, was pretty sure they were electrostatic. Uh, and then they discovered the electron, right, 1890, 1987? Um, and so that, that was pretty good, right? So electrostatic, we've got negative charges now. Um, this seems to be this seems to be right, um, except that chemists knew ratios of carbons and hydrogens in organic molecules, and they knew that uh, these atoms weren't very good at making ions, and so they weren't really sure that it could be electrostatic in this case. And so uh, Gilbert Lewis is kind of credited with thinking of kind of a covalent bond, so the ability of atoms to share electrons. But more importantly, for kind of our pictures in our heads, for um, representing electrons as little dots and kind of figuring out how they could go together. And so this is a page from his, uh, his notebook. I always tell my students to make sure to write their notebook well, because you never know when they're going to be in a talk, you know, 100 years later. Um, but he thought of electrons uh, as, as dots on the vertices of a cube. And then atoms could come together and share uh, sides um, of a cube or the vertices to, to make bonds. Um, and when they could make eight of these, have eight electrons, um, so all the vertices of a cube, uh, they were most stable. Okay? And so this worked really well for the organic molecules he was, he was thinking of. And just a few years later, when Bohr kind of came up with uh, kind of quantum models of the atom and eight electrons, um, kind of neatly filled um, some orbitals. Everyone felt felt pretty good about that. But this um, this doesn't really tell you what bonding is, right? It just gives you a representation of where we might put electrons. But Gilbert Lewis um, kind of kind of believed in believed in bonds. Um, in the mind of the organic chemist, the chemical bond is no mere abstraction. It's a definite physical reality of something that binds the atom to the atom. Okay. So just a few uh, few years later, right? So th this, the 20s was an exciting time, right? In, in, in chemistry and physics. So quantum, quantum mechanics is coming on. People want to, to apply quantum mechanics to chemistry. Um, the early physicists did this with, with hydrogen. Uh, chemists usually want, want to, to use things other than hydrogen. And so there's a real push to figure out how could you now describe the chemical bonds using these new wave functions, right? And there were kind of two main theories um, kind of at the time of how you could combine these wave functions of individual atoms or individual electrons in the atom into, into describing chemical bonding. So the first of these was Linus Pauling and kind of his contemporaries. Um, and so what he did, and this was kind of um, early 30s, uh, mid 30s, is he thought of two ways uh, in which you could combine the wave functions of individual uh, electrons to look at a number of structures that then kind of added together um, gave you the, the real one, right? And so resonance structures and hybridization are kind of his uh, way of incorporating quantum mechanics into to chemical bonding. And so resonance here just means that you could have multiple ways of representing bonding. 
the atoms remain at the same place, because we know where the atoms are, um, but the electrons move, okay? And the idea here is that you neither have the one on the left or the one on the right, and that's ozone right there, but that the real structure is sort of a weighted average of both, okay? Here there's only two, so it's half of one, half of the other. Um, here's a picture from one of his first papers of all the resonance structures of naphthalene. Um, now, if any of you are chemists, I hear a couple chuckles, good. So the chemists in the room are like shrinking back in horror um, at some of these structures. But in order to get the right answer, you have to draw every possible structure, no matter how improbable they are. So in order to precisely determine the structure, you have to do this. So with naphthalene, you get like 42 of them. More complicated molecules, you get, get even more. So this became unwieldy quickly. Um, hybridization, he also, uh, worked at, and that is kind of showing how orbitals on an atom can kind of mix together to give a different shape to, to do the bonding, okay? So valence bond theory is his, his theory. We still teach it every first and second year uh, chemistry class. Um, here's Linus Pauling. So this is now uh, 1939. We shall say that there is a chemical bond between two atoms or groups of atoms in the case that the force is acting between them are such as to lead the formation of an aggregate with sufficient stability to make it convenient for the chemist to consider it as an independent molecular species. Okay? So you believe there is actually a physical, physical thing here. The uh, kind of rival way of mixing together your wave functions to make chemical bonding was Robert Mulliken and Friedrich Hahn and, and other collaborators who were um, at the same time. And he said, look, you know, you're limiting yourself if you only think that a bond has to be between two atoms. Because like if you think about relationships, so yeah, you can have a relationship with one other person, but you can have relationships with lots of people, right? Um, and so you, there's nothing special about just two atoms being able to, to interact. And so what he did is take uh, wave functions, um, across a molecule adapting for symmetry and, and energy. And he came up with something called molecular orbitals. And so the result of his uh, theory meant that you had very delocalized um, kind of smears of electron density. Okay, so here's the same ozone picture I had before, where you remember Pauling had kind of two, that he's like, well, there's some average. Um, here, you, you really have a bond that's across three atoms, okay? So you might have two electrons in an area that has uh, three atoms. So molecular orbital theory was really useful. It explains spectroscopy really well, and especially before the advent of the computer, um, it was a lot easier to calculate to a qualitative sense that, that, that chemists could tell something and predict something about bonding. Because chemists weren't, weren't, weren't physicists, right? We, we didn't just, well, I don't think this is probably just either, but we didn't just want to know the number, right? We didn't want to know just the precise energy. We wanted to be able to make predictions chemically, like, like when we're, we're synthesizing molecules. And so figuring out where bonds might, might be able to be formed um, could, could help us do this. So Mulliken's favorite quote uh, directed toward Pauling was, I believe the chemical bond is not so simple as some people like to think, some people, was, uh, was Linus Pauling. So molecular orbital theory is 
is also still used. Uh, we, we teach that at the same time, actually, we teach valence bond theory. And these are by far not the only two theories. These are just two good qualitative, uh, qualitative examples. So by the 50s, we have statements like this, um, Charles Coulson. Sometimes it seems to me that a bond between two atoms has become so real, so tangible, so friendly, that I can almost see it. Then I awake with a little shock, for a chemical bond is not a real thing. It does not exist. No one has ever seen one. No one ever can. It's a figment of our imagination. So it's dangerous um, to say no one ever can, right? It's dangerous, dangerous. And so, here we go. Um, so, so, so here you go. Um, this is uh, some atomic force microscopy, non-contact AFM. Uh, of, of some organic molecules that are very flat, which is, uh, you need that for, for the method. And what you can do if you, if you do this, if you look at the bottom three pictures, is you can see something that looks kind of exactly like the pictures I kind of draw with the lines up at the top, okay? And it's not just points like you get from a diffraction pattern, but there actually is like kind of cloudy stuff in between the points, okay? So that's electron density. And if you define your chemical bond as electron density between atoms, there, there you go. There's some evidence of electron, uh, electron density. And you can even see bonds forming. So remember chemists are wanting to make stuff. Uh, and so here on the left, you get a reactant, you heat it up, you're making several products and you can see the formation of, uh, of the products. And this agrees well with experiment. Um, and uh, I don't know. So are we seeing a bond? Are we seeing electron, you know, repulsion from a force in between? A, you know, so it's, there's a question here, right? And I don't, I'm not sure chemists are really certain how they, they want to answer it. Um, headlines are really good. Um, when you say you can see a chemical bond uh, here. So this, this continues to be, I'm going to do the next couple just because there's a, a bunch of them. This continues to be, be a question. So all of these are in the last five or ten years, right? Beyond the bond, more than ever, new techniques show the bond to be a convenient fiction, albeit ones that holds the field of chemistry together. Okay, here's, here's another one. This is, this is from a group of physical chemists. We address the paradoxical fact that the concept of a covalent bond, a cornerstone of chemistry, which is well resolved computationally, quantum mechanics can actually tell us a lot uh, about chemical bonding, um, is still the subject of debate, disagreement, and ignorance with respect to its physical uh, origin. Okay? You have whole journals, whole journal issues, full of people talking about the nature of the chemical bond. So this is, this is 100 years after uh, Lewis, um, after, uh, after, after a lot of, of um, the, the early quantum mechanics and descriptions of what a chemical bond might be. Okay? So I'm an organometallic chemist, um, and so this is, this is one of the, uh, the exciting ones uh, for, for me. So uh, there is, uh, was made kind of uh, 2007 or so, there's been several of these, these cores of three copper atoms in kind of an equilibrium triangle. 
and two sulfur atoms kind of above and below that plane. And this is important, and this is a, a really useful kind of synthetic target because you see the same core in a number of biomolecules. Um, and, and the question is, well, what's, what's the structure here? Because the structure tells you something about reduction potentials at those coppers, which tells you something about the reactivity they can do in biological systems and other, other catalysis. So we made the compound, we get crystal structure of the compound. And the question is, do you draw a line between the two sulfurs okay, in, in the molecule? Now, if you're a crystallographer, whether you draw the line there or not, is more or less governed by expected bond distances. It's just a distance thing. If two things are close enough together, we're gonna to draw a line. And those distances are in, in tables of molecules that have been made before. Math chemists have kind of agreed there's a bond there. There's a, there's a chemical bond. Um, chemical bond there. Um, there's a lot of disagreement about whether, well, it's obvious that that distance can't be the only determinant, right? Or even really the, the real determinant, or the main determinant. Um, just like, you know, me sitting next to someone on a plane doesn't necessarily say that I have a relationship of any, you know, friendship or whatever with that, with that person. In this molecule, the two sulfurs are, are quite close together, but they have to be close together because of how they're, they're bound to the, the copper. So the question is, is there, is there electron density between those two sulfurs? Well, computationally, depending on how you ask that question, what method of quantum mechanics you use to approximate the wave function of your molecule, you get slightly different answers. And some of them seem to say yes, and some of them seem to say no. And chemists were kind of on, on, on two sides. Some of them you know, really believed in oxidation states uh, of, of the, the copper, so the copper had to have a particular uh, number uh, of electrons, um, and so that meant the sulfur had to have this number of electrons, and so electrons were or were not available, uh, available for bonding. So anyway, it's really, really complicated. So I picked up just two of the, the, the papers that were, were talking about this. So here's the first one that kind of used some of Pauling's uh, theories. It's using kind of valence bond theory. A definitive answer to a bonding quandary. Definitive is also <laughs> hard work. They tried to get around it by putting the question mark. Uh, the role of a one electron resonance structure in, in the bonding of the core. And they come up with, well, almost no, uh, almost no bond there. Um, another paper, um, Bonding quandary, insights from the analysis of domain average Fermi holes in the local spin. That sounds, that sounds scientific. Must be certain <laughs> if we're talking about Fermi holes, okay? <laughs> so they say, well, there's half a bond, okay? And I didn't tell you, bonds don't just come in integers, right? So there's some electron density there, not enough to call it a, a single bond, but, but more, than, more than nothing. But one of the cool things, I'm going to do the next one too. One of the cool things about this whole story is three of the original chemists involved, including uh, Royal Hoffman, who won a Nobel Prize um, for his work in bonding, wrote a paper uh, writing down their conversation about you know, the bonding, whether there's a bond or not. Right? Two of them thought there was a bond, one of them didn't think there was a bond. And the paper is really interesting. Um, if you're interested in, 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 in kind of structure, uh, this, uh, this subject, 
This is a really good one. It's kind of a long paper. Um, so they're, they're kind of, it's written as a dialogue. Which chemists, you know, scientists, we, we're not good at writing dialogues um, the, the same way our, our philosophy uh, colleagues, colleagues are. So at the beginning, we say, we want more than numbers. We want understanding of chemically meaningful trends, which is essential for suggesting geometries and electronic states as of yet unmade particles, right? So we want a theory that tells us whether this is a bond or not. We just don't want to, to calculate it, because yeah, we can calculate it. All right. Um, here you go. My experience rooted in my respect for chemical tradition and the rudiments of political psychology, learned by teaching undergraduate, is that if you propose something seemingly weird, tread gently. Okay, so kind of uh, extraordinary proof is required for extraordinary claims. Okay. Um, and so they kind of go through, like, historically, like, traditionally, could you, could you consider there to be a bond here or not, okay? And then they kind of, then they kind of bring up the, like, well, you know, what's a thing? <laughs> um, so if a bond's a thing, it has to be able to, to be defined, it has actual properties, you can say whether it's this thing or this other thing. But if it's not a thing, if it's a relationship or a process, this is, this is harder uh, or maybe impossible. And so they, uh, they start talking about, you know, night and day, right? We all agree that there's night and there's day. But in the middle part, we have a problem, right? Because it's, it's dawn or it's twilight. And which of that, which, which do you have, right? So it depends on your definition of what night is and what day is. And so in the same way, they reason a chemical bond also depends um, on, on, on what it is. But when they talk about what they learn, what they, what they come to is basically, um, well, we have to use multiple methods, and when we use multiple methods, we're gonna get multiple answers, and we're gonna kind of be okay with that. It's kind of what they come to in the paper. Um, and they're like, well, if you care most about uh, oxidation state, you're going to get this answer. If you care most about uh, looking at how um, kind of spin angular momentum is, is put on copper atoms, you're going to you're going to get this other other answer. And so it's not simple, which of course Mulliken told us um, you know, 70 years ago. So I think I'll just I'll just I'll put this quote up here at the end, um, which is. Um, I think probably where, where many chemists kind of are, um, that um, rigorous definitions can be impoverishing, and that um, you, you should have fun with the fuzzy richness of the idea. Chemists get that. But it's not a very satisfying answer, right? So chemists just consistently ask, like, is it there? Is it a bond? Right? Did I make a bond? Did I make a new bond? Um, and so while just like mechanisms where they know there's uncertainty here, they know there's uncertainty in what we think of as a chemical bond, they still, uh, well, they're searching for the bond. The, the, the so, can I go in there? Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org slash donate. 
Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.